Today's episode is sponsored by Itential. Itential is network and cloud automation. The Itential platform makes it easy for you to gain insight into your entire network infrastructure. Bring your network into compliance through remediation, automatically prevent non-compliant changes from making their way into the network, gain the confidence you need to automate your network safely. Know your network, automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, hey, there's sponsorship opportunities for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pushers podcast shows. So if you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. If you got something cool working with IPv6, we really want to hear about it. So, you know, come join us on the IPv6 Buzz and, you know, you can explain to us what's cool and awesome about what you're doing with V6. Uh, I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffeen. Uh, Scott Hogue is away today. And uh, today we're going to be talking about IPv6 from a developer's sort of point of view with our guest Richard Campbell. So Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, and, thanks uh, for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's jump into it because, um, and, and just a little bit of background for for, for the folks. Um, Richard's a longtime friend and colleague and, and, and has done a lot of work in, in the developer community space. And we wanted to get a chance to sort of talk with with him about the specific and unique challenges around getting V6 working from a developer's point of view versus an operator's point of view, because we always spend all this time talking about like, hey, this is what you needed to deploy it and all these other things. But we never really talk about the applications that actually use it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wait, there are applications that use it? Uh, well, I, <laughs> that's a different issue. Now you're just talking crazy talk, Tom. Goodness knows. You know, but, uh, computers work so much better to this network if this stuff showed up. Then everything got hard. I was going to say the opposite. Our network yeah. is fine. Just keep the applications off of it, please. Yes. That's it. <laughs> and you can see the dynamics going to be in this conversation. Right. That's right. Well, and let's jump into it. Let's let's talk about where things are at for developers. I mean, it's it's changed quite a bit. I would think over the last twenty years since V six has sort of been around from the from the get go, maybe a little bit longer. And and what the impacts are for developers in terms of working with V six and how do they consume it? What is it something? Is it something they're actually interested in and, and something they look at you know uniquely versus like V four or do they even not care about networking stacks anymore and they just you know, hope that a library is going to take care of everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, it all depends on how disciplined they are, right? I mean, that, it's very, I, I like the comparison of the, the IPv4 v6 problem to Y2K. You know, if you were storing four digit years all along, Y2K was not a big deal. But if you did the shortcut and stored two, well, hunting all those down is not a trivial problem. Like it, it took a while. And, I basically bought a house on the back of fixing old things like that in, in 99. That was a good year for me. But, but, and that's over and over again, I say these same sort of things. If you're sitting in a high level language, you know, if you live in .NET land, there's a lot of projects, a lot of software you could build where you're pretty abstracted from the network layer. Right. You, know, you, you may, and, and, and if you're not, wherever you're not, wherever you touch it, hopefully you're touching it with a URI. It's, you know, but, Devs take shortcuts and they embed IPv4 addresses in things. Right. Yeah. It and, and that's often to, to bypass maybe development uh, lab conditions or other things where maybe like DNS isn't resolving the way you think it should or uh, other I things. I think it's more that they're afraid to talk to IT. IT takes from things <laughs> like that. <laughs> that never happened. I don't know what no, you're talking about, Richard. I can't imagine. Or they, or they literally don't know the path. Like rather than take the time to say, hey, can I have some name resolution here? I'll just, right. hey, you know what? I can ping that machine. I see the IP address. Off I go. And so, and then it's remarkable how persistent those shortcuts are, how long it takes to actually hunt them all down. Right. Do, yeah. do you think? Do you think that's going away a little bit with with cloud uh, changing some of the design parameters around what that because they just won't tolerate that, right? Oh, they, without a doubt. And honestly, yeah. I think the pandemic served purpose very well there. We started shoving a whole bunch of software out into remote work that was never built to work in remote work, and you pretty quickly figured out that VPNs get fairly sulky about right. how IP mapping works, and 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 if you use the URL, it doesn't. So <laughs> there was a lot of stuff that got fixed in a hurry around that. Yeah, much yeah. less if you migrated, you know, that shove of migration that happened in this in this past 18 months and you and you're you're picking up VMs that you that have only ever run on prem and now they're running up in Azure 
and you're trying to connect to them directly. And I'll tell you this, clouds have no tolerance for fixed IPs. They are just not going to play with you that way. Right. Yeah. They're just not designed and scaled to be, to be built out the, in, in that fashion, unless, unless you're willing to pay a lot of money to have a fixed one and, and then map through and do all the yeah. work. And in which case you, you really had to actually do design work to make that, make that stuff function the way you want. Well, and also, I mean, again, this, the, the power of the pandemic on development and infrastructure as a whole was exceptions took too long. Like you, you had to do what was the natural thing because you couldn't get a lot of tech support cycles. You couldn't, you could not afford to ask for an exception to say, you know, we're the special case here and needed to work differently. You had to find the way that it would work or you weren't going to get it done anytime soon. Hmm, that's an interesting point. I hadn't even thought about that. That's, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I guess the downside of that would be you'd probably have some instances where folks were just like, <clears throat> things aren't working properly. Hmm, what's this V6? Let's just turn that off to see if it fixes it. Oh, look, it, that fixed it. Uh, okay, good well, to go. Well, and goodness knows how often that happened over the past 20 years, right? <laughs> exactly. We, Same old we story. Did have, we had problems with network configuration. We had problems with poor quality switches and routers and you know, and, and Vista didn't help either. <laughs> you brought that up. You would have to go there. Dude, I started an <laughs> IT podcast as Vista was shipping. Like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> glutton for hey, punishment. Was, yeah, well, I was I, I was glutton for punishment because I, I got brought in to start testing the networking stack for Vista. That was that was the whole reason I got <sighs> moved into V6 was when Dave Thaler was rewriting the networking stack going from, you know, from XP to Windows Vista, that was a whole rewrite for the number. Yeah, stack. That's how I got them back over. Well, yeah. and I, and I come from the web tuning world where, you know, the most tricked out IIS implementation was 2003 R2 and that stack went away. And for a long time, we hang on, held on to those machines because they were simply faster. Yeah, they're optimized. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you're super optimized for, for, for performance, right? For what you wanted for both TCP, but then also for just cache memory, everything else, yeah. right? At the, at the expense of accuracy of network implementation, there were shortcuts taken and, <laughs> and at the expense of IPv6, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's talk about how a, a developer typically interacts with V4 and V6. Let's say they need some attributes from V4, whether that's a logging attribute, whether that's a identity piece of information, maybe it's a, a session flow that they have to track and keep track of for compliance reasons or something like that. How do developers typically go, go around interacting with the stack in order to get this sort of information pushed in and out? Um, and, and how does that work? And is there a difference between V4 and V6 in terms of how that works? Yeah, well, I think right off the bat, you're, you're hitting a key point that an awful lot of the logging libraries and things that we have been using didn't have V6 integrated in them. So, you know, as you start to look at an application, say, is this going to behave? And you, or you're even asked that question, or you look at those log files and they are logging V4 addresses. They're not logging V6 addresses. And that's not your piece of code, right? That's a library you picked up online or you may have even paid for. And so now you're like, well, where's the V6 implementation around that? Although your average dev is not asking that question. Ops is asking that question. These log files are worthless to us because they're not using the V6 stuff we're trying to do analysis on. Like, how do we fix this? And then you're, you're, you're literally asking for a feature to get into the stream of an application, which is where is this stuff? Are we just not surfacing or is it not being collected? Both of which are possibilities. Okay. Well, I mean, and, and I know the, that, you know, APM um, uh, products are, are getting more and more popular for developers to sort of understand what's happening within their stack and the interaction sure. between their platforms. And, um, uh, sorry, uh, application performance management tools, <laughs> APM. So like folks like uh, AppDynamics and New Relic mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know who else is Datadog. Uh, I don't know who else fits in the well, space. There, but There are dozens, but you yeah, know, yeah. You're, you're the big one. And, you know, don't ignore Azure Insights. Yeah, Azure that's, Insights would be. That's often an answer for folks. Right. And, and so does V4 and V6 get exposed within those toolings often? I, I imagine there's a, there, there is some need for that simply because of like flow related data and like this is a session going on. It doesn't get handed off to the right. Maybe it's a, you know, you got some sort of low balancing or you got a message queue and you're like, what's going on there? Like I need to have some way to trace or, or follow information as it's going through the network. Yeah. And, in, and the push really these days, I think more than anything is give me URLs. Like I don't, I don't want to see the IPs anymore. I didn't mind looking at, at, at four bytes 
but I mm-hmm. mind looking at 128 bits. And, and <laughs> I, you know, we get angry about GUIDs too. Like there's, we have right. enough hexadecimal in our life. We do not need more. So let's start using names. And I think that's really the press as we try and do more analytics and, and deal with what networking looks like today is uh, give me the names. I don't want to see the, ID, the IDs anymore. Right. Okay. And, and I know, I know that's super popular. Like Kubernetes, Kubernetes is all names based, right? Names, you want to, yeah. Yeah, you want to get away and, and, and get away from that and put some abstractions in there to, to sort of handle that so you're not having to see the details. Well, and you understand the resistance that. of this is that in it's remarkably hard to name things. It's hard to name things whether you're dev or ops or anything. It's always hard mm-hmm. to name things. Right. And especially when you deal with clusters uh, in, you know, in Kubernetes land where you tend to make more names than ever before, you simply have to have naming algorithms. You need to generate names in a reliable, coherent way that then people can read them and know what they are because entering them is building pools of them sucks. You just have to be able to spit them out. Right, right. Yeah, you want some sort of algorithm that can that can auto generate and hand them out and parse them out as need be, and then put yeah. them in the log file that said it was this at this time. And right. if you really need to go dig into it, go 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 stitch that information together from the log file and from the time of date that you needed it, and and you should have the information you need, right? And but hopefully, still be enough human readable that at a glance, when you look at the name, you say that is this particular type of container or this particular type of router or right, this particular right. type of, of controller, right? I mean, yeah. we, we don't necessarily know all the civics, but you know, if, if you're spitting out Goods' name, you're not doing anybody favors either. <laughs> well, hey, let's, let's, let's talk about the, the, the next sort of evolution for, for, for the logging side is, is often there's a problem with, with parsing, right? With storing mm-hmm. and parsing information. And, you know, and V6 is substantially different enough from V4 that if you try and use your V6 uh, or you try and use your V4, you know, regex or, or parsing algorithm, you're probably not going to get very far in terms yeah. of understanding what's going on with V6. So is, is that something that developers normally handle or do they like they're they're really just out there, you know, uh, looking for code snippets to help them resolve? resolve well, it depends, to, and it depends on what level you're programming at. Like if right, you are. If you're living in the forms over data land, you probably don't need to do that. And if you have, okay. you've made a mistake and you can fix it with a string that's a name. Right. But lots of socket programming going on these days, you know, uh, getting that real time effect through things like SignalR and other web socket libraries so that we can maintain a connection to a browser and can do interactive development. Like folks really like that. And that does tend to drive you to identifiers. Right. And and that can easily end up being a V4 address because again, you 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 get into this trap on the dev cycle because you're creating instances, you know, dynamic VMs or dynamic containers that you're not doing name assignment for because it's hard, right? Because you, so you're taking the shortcut of not putting the namespace in, not, and not doing the extra step of, and we also register this with DNS, right? Like which. We should, you know, that's really the job of an orchestrator is to make sure that those names get assigned. But if you haven't taken the time to learn that piece, you can make it work off the IP. And then, you know, you, you gradually compound your mistakes by now wrapping parsers on top of that and tokenizing and working around when the answer was just use DNS. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and on, the, on the logging side, I think it's interesting too, because there's a whole debate because a, a V6 address is 128 bits long. It's, do you store it as, as a, you know, is this a long integer? Is this like, is this a string value that you just store it as? Like, and, and because of the fact that you can do zero compression and you can do remove leading zeros, like trying to get an address to match is sometimes a lot harder. Yeah, and even uppercase um, so, versus lowercase. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, that's even just character sets. So, I, I think I, I think the probably the the wise and sage devices or advice would be like you know go get the right libraries that sort of handle this for totally. you to make sure that make sure that you're doing this and that someone has hopefully written them well. Uh, I know there's some good you know Tom and I have both used libraries in, in Python to help um, sort of normalize some of this so that you're not you're not as struggling as much in terms of making sure that your V6 addresses actually come out correctly and also. The interesting thing is, do you actually build two separate fields, one for storing V4, one for, for storing V6, or do you just subsume V4 addresses underneath V6? There's a whole special allocation range, Richard, for, for storing V4 addresses as yeah. V6 addresses. Well, today, I mean, and I'm, again, I'm living very much in the Windows world, right? right. And the, and the Win32 APIs have INET Python and, and like proper functions for, you can have me, have me an IPv4 and IPv6, and I will manage it for you. Ah, oh, awesome. And, and, 
right? Like those things exist. Are they surfaced in your language in a meaningful way? They're in the Win32 API, but whether or not your particular platform uh, or your particular programming level works with that, because there is no excuse. Like that is down in the plumbing and it's available to you. You know, it's just a question of, can you get at it? If you're writing a C++, no biggie. Like that's what you should be doing. It's <laughs> as you go up the stack, what does that look like? Right. But, and, and you know, you're, you're, you're politely avoiding the thing, Ed. The thing is, <laughs> do not be storing IPv4 and IPv6 addresses as strings. Bad things will happen to you. Right. Yeah. That's that's exactly. Well, that was what the heart of the heart of the question was really at. It was it was sort of saying like, hey, it's there. There's a proper way to to do these things, and there's mm. you know, and there's a proper way for developers to be storing really related pieces of information, and and and, uh, and and you know, addresses become one of those things that that becomes very interesting in terms of how they're dealt with that way. You know, we so, buried yeah. the lead again. <laughs> somebody already turned off the podcast at this point they'll they just won't be able to take advantage of that hard-earned wisdom <laughs> yeah i mean and, and admittedly you know they do i'm just double checking here you know we do a section on dotnet rocks called better know a framework so you know i ought to know this it's just the framework's really flipping big turns but it turns out search engines work too and in system.net there is the ip address class and it will take on both an ipv4 and an ipv6 address there so you go you have no and excuses it, and it is fundamentally a wrapper over top of inet piton in in win32 that's what it is right and, and for the listening audience who is not as familiar with the developers and, and the windows space which richard is super familiar with that's <laughs> that as you're working your way through this you're going to find that you're going to have different skill levels of your developers and they may or may not actually know about some of these depending on where they were brought in in, in the in their development journey and life cycle right they may have only ever learned you know net and never spent any time on c plus plus or anything on a lower on a, on a lower basis scraping on metal right so <laughs> it's depending on where they're at i think that's that's one of the things where you this this is one of the advantages you're going to get out of the show is hey how are you actually, what abstractions are you using? How are you yeah. actually storing data? What are you doing to, to log this information? How are you actually presenting it? You know, because there's weird things like even just uh, for those that are front end developers, it's like, are you doing bounds checking for, you know, input variables? Yeah. So if you're making something that needs to input an actual V6 address, but you're, but all your bounds checking is actually for V4, you're never going to get a V6 address to actually accept in there. Or yeah, it'll never go in, in the first place. Just like right. asking for zip code from a Canadian. Right? And being upset <laughs> that you've got letters in your zip code. That it's, it's, it's exactly the same problem space. And so, right. you know, if there's anything we send them away with, you know, the basic idea is don't treat it as a string. There are handlers for addresses. But take a step back. Why are we storing addresses? There are tool, there are libraries meant for that, you know, the DNS tooling and so forth. You should be dealing with names. Yeah. I, and I, I think, think there's very few cases where you can excuse doing anything other than names these days. We pause the episode for some thinking about end-to-end -end automation across all your networks with sponsor Itential. I have long advocated for simplifying the network to help make automation work well, and I, I have lost the battle. Your, your network probably consists of physical hardware, virtualized network functions, the internet as WAN and VPN tunnels or direct connects, or both to multiple public clouds. So... How's your automation initiative working out? Maybe not great. What if you had an automation tool to help bring order to the chaos? Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks like yours more manageable. The Itential platform offers you insight into your entire infrastructure. So you lean into Itential and it's gonna help you quickly detect non-compliant devices and then target them for remediation. And, and all this works if your network devices offer a modern API or are CLI only. And the big idea here, feel in control. Be confident about what your network actually is with the Itential platform doing the heavy lifting for you. And with that baseline, you can trust that the automation processes you build with the Itential platform will deliver the network state your organization requires. Itential also has a configuration manager tool, which lets you integrate configuration validation right into your automation processes. And this lets you take a step back from knowing the nuance of every networking component you're responsible for. You get operational consistency. You ask Itential to execute the configuration task and Itential makes sure it gets done across both your on-prem gear and cloudy virtual infrastructure. 
right, so iTensure does a lot, and so maybe you're worried that iTensure is going to require 19 months of training and a team of rockstar developers to make it work. If you're thinking that you're missing a key point here, iTensure is meant to be easy to use. For instance, iTensure's low-code automation studio provides drag-and-drop network automation plus an open library of pre-built automation workflows with integrations to any IT system, end-to-end automation across all your networks, simplifying network automation for everyone on your team. Know your network. Automate your network. iTensial. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. And now back to today's episode. Well, it brings up a larger question, I think, related to, you know, definitely develop, developers have the, the the issues that they need to focus on related to IPv6. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of our listeners are, are more on the management side of things that they're trying to think about how do we wrangle this IPv6 beast from from top to bottom. And so, of course, that mm-hmm. includes the network and that includes IT. And it, it, it probably includes development teams for some of the larger enterprises. So uh, other than what we've talked about so far or, or, you know, even deeper on what we've talked about so far, what what do they need to be considering related to IPv6 adoption as a, with regards to their development teams? Yeah, I, I, again, it's it's have we done a good job on the ops side so that IPv6 is working well? I mean, we need to do some educating just on here's how you, if you are, if we're going to give the ability for dev to create instances of resources, which is fundamentally what we're doing. Like I'm standing up a VM or I'm standing up containers. I'm standing up a, a, a test suite for a 20 minute run to validate a bunch of functions before I tear it all back down again. Have we done the work to make sure it's getting named, that we have name registrations and clean them up, please? Uh, We're keen on giving developers self-service around that. Mm -hmm. It's efficient, right? We don't want them to be constantly pushing tickets to us to do that. Uh, They want to develop faster. They're doing these rapid iteration processes. The more automation we put in there, the better. But I think you got to finish the job. And the the job is, and it, it would certainly be my mission if I was shepherding a group of developers in that sysadmin role is don't let them touch addresses. They shouldn't need to, or if they, it should be the exception mm-hmm. that they need an address for anything. Cause you just understand how much problem you create as soon as they have them. The moment you start owning names, start owning those numbers and start being in more than one place, the chance that they're wrong, it's sitting in a config file and then we need to migrate and we need to change <laughs> things around. Like it's just going to bite you where if right. it was a name, it, you now have a place where ops can deal with that name location change in DNS. Right. Yeah. Put and put that abstraction in there and whatever cut over time and time frame, and mm-hmm. they can they can control even how long it's propagated and and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. And and you give those things short. T- I mean, if you especially when you talk about test labs and things, those are twenty minute TTLs, man. Like they just don't need to be around very long. Generally, these runs are fast, and the sooner they're cleaned up, decached, the better off you are. Um, the other area where you, where you get haunted is in the CI/CD pipelines, right? Is in a lot of this automation generated stuff where you are creating instances of stuff that are part of staging to a deploy. Mm-hmm. And same thing, like lo- a lot of folks are just getting over the threshold with their automated pipelines. And so they're often not doing that tidy work of we use naming conventions mm-hmm. for these transitory deployment objects. We don't just right. use their IPs. Right. And then we'll walk us through a little bit of, of that, because I know one of the big things that's going on now is like, what do they call it? Like blue green. Like you want to do a little bit of, of, you know, maybe small test test case scenarios and namespace yeah. becomes really important then because you, you're going to take a certain portion and throw them onto a different namespace to test, test out. Maybe uh, you, you're like only 5% of my traffic. Do I want to steer over to this new test website that, uh, you know, it's running as production, but it's really, you know, it's a test. It's, it's, it's to see whether it's going to be functional or not. And then we'll roll it out to the rest of the cluster sort of thing. And, right? and that's, you know, the, the idea of these feature flags are small scope features where they're mm-hmm. only, we're running on certain types of traffic only and so forth. That's a very sophisticated level of the uh, automated deployment options. Um, right. We, we're doing more and more testing in the, in production because we pretty much have to, right. And a lot of the integrate first, dark features that that are initially deployed off and then they're only turned on in specific instances for experimentation. And it's great to have naming around that that identifies as experimental. 
it, it's not just for the devs and the QA guys. It's so that ops knows when those log entries appear. You're like, what the heck are these? <laughs> like that that was a transitory feature that you should not have a panic. There's there there is a some kind of exploit running. Right. Right. Because it's going to have right. very different shape track if you're trying a new feature. So the fact that we use naming conventions that identify it rather than addresses like that can save a lot of grief and heartache. Right. Yeah. An address wouldn't you wouldn't know from anything. I mean, especially with V6, with so many addresses being available, yeah. it's just randomly assignable. And you're like, oh, that doesn't have any significance or meaning to well, me. I would imagine there's a non-trivial number of developers who take one look at uh, managing V6 in that way and just are like, oh, crap, we need to get back to using names. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I, how about I turn on IPv6 off so I never have to see that again? Right. Like that's an answer. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's not an uncommon answer, actually. Yeah. I think no, there's a and, lot of use. Yeah. And disturbingly effective. Right. Even though it's oh, a really yeah. bad idea, like for the short term goal of it, I just want to test my software, man, and move on. Uh, that is, a, but it, you know, you also talk about the other testing layer, which is does the software function function in IPv4 environments? Probably. Does it function in a mixed environment? Maybe. Does it operate in a V6 environment? You know, that's all good questions. And it's a whole other suite of testing to be done now. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's hard to, it's, it's hard for many developers to be like, oh, well, I'm going to test in a V6 only environment. So they go ask their ops team, do you have a V6 only environment? And they're like, we don't even have a dual stack environment. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind a V6 only environment. So yeah, that's, it's, it definitely has a set of challenges in the operations. And, and, I, and I, I think a PM would ask that. I doubt a dev would ask that. But again, I think ops would push back on, hey, I want, I want to know that you have V6 specific testing going on. Right. Well, I like, think it's going to come up more and more now, Richard, because I, I, and you're probably you may not be familiar with this, but the the, the White House issued uh, through the Office of Management Budget OMB mm -hmm. uh, here in the U.S. They issued a, a requirement, a, a, a memo that basically required that the federal federal agencies and departments uh, need to be need to be adopting V6 only, not just right. dual stack, but V6 only, and they have a time horizon that's pretty short. Uh, by 2023, they need to have 20% of their network traffic V6 only. By 2024, 50%. By 2025, 80% of their traffic needs to be V6 only. So I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of people running around saying like, does our product work as V6 only? Yeah. <laughs> right? no, I think uh, there's and, a lot of pressure on that. And I mean, is, is the reason just to increase IPv6 adoption or is it to get that native security problem? Because I don't know if you guys both. have seen this. It, it, I mean, it's both. Yeah, it's both. I am up to my eyeballs in ransomware conversations these days. Yep. The average mm -hmm. IT guy is scared to death. Mm -hmm. And anything that gives us more ambient security, like we, the whole conversation about naming conventions around uh, feature flag stuff, that's because I had that scenario where you, folks have turned up their intrusion detection so far that any unusual behavior, including just a tested feature, tripped all kinds of alarms. They locked down the network thinking they were being attacked. Right, when it was just a new dev feature. <laughs> it was a feature that was asked for, right? But right, you don't right. necessarily profile in advance. The, the ops didn't know it was going in, but a set of naming conventions could have shown that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I do think security is, is, is one of the reasons that the federal government's pushing so hard on this is they do want more generalized, widespread V6 yeah. adoption to actually inform people. You, you don't get good at security unless you're using something on a regular yeah. basis. And I think they really want to up the the percent utilization of V6 in order to make sure that the, that, you know, developers are seeing it enough app, you know, operation teams are seeing enough security teams are seeing it enough. Everyone in up and down the food chain are, are, are getting more, would get more comfortable with V6, not just in a dual stack. Cause the problem with dual stack is if V6 isn't working, you're going to fall back to V4. Always. Yeah. And, if and, you're and V4, often a lot of your testing is just going to end up being V4 and passing. Cause you didn't even realize you failed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The dual stack absorbed it for you. Right. Exactly. So that's why there's a, such a big push on that. I don't know. I mean, Tom, do you, do you, yeah, do you see mean, it different? And definitely from a security standpoint, that's just a nightmare, right? It's like, is this traffic originating over V4 or V6? You know, what mm -hmm. my, my attack, where on my attack surface is the V4 attack surface or V6 attack surface? And then just not having any any sort of operational practice are built around that related to to security along with everything else. I mean, it's just, you know, one checkbox for us as far as from the IPv6 adoption perspective. But yeah, I get the feeling that that, that approach of forcing IPv6 only is, is going to, to force the, the commensurate level of IPv6 operational practice that, that extends into security and, and get, provides a dividend for federal agencies. Well, and it strikes me that this is a good bar to jump over in quality of software, even if you're not going to end up running it in IPv6 only mode. 
that if you know that it works that way, you've done a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. like certainly purged, you know, IPv4 address dependencies out of your app. Yeah, out of your code base, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so, so you there. know that whether it's sitting in the log files or it's sitting in, in, in config stuff or it's part of your pipeline or it's actually in your code, like all of those locations where those addresses might creep in, Running, running a full exercise to sort of end-to-end -end integration test in an IPv6 environment and all those things check off, you've got pretty high confidence at that point you don't have that dependency. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and I think that's a good point. I, I'm sort of curious for you in terms of, I, I think mobile development is, is turning into like a, a pretty big thing um, or it has yeah. been for, for quite a long time. And Apple, you know, Apple on the iOS side has had, you know, V6 only requirements for a long time for the application developers. When, when did that come out, Tom? 2015, 2017, somewhere around uh, Yeah, I think 2015 seems to ring a bell, but uh, it's hard to say. I, th I, I don't think it was like forced as a standard till 2017. I think they announced in 2015 and mm -hmm. said everyone needs to come up to speed by 2017. Your apps need to be running that way to be in the app store for Apple. And then, you know, Google, Google has done something similar in terms of V6 adoption. So I think the mobile developers are definitely there in terms of their capability because they're, they're able to run on V6 only networks. Like if you're on T-Mobile, T-Mobile yeah. Sprint, you're V6 only. Like well, and, and to that point, it's like, it's, a, it's about the carriers, man. Like th they've been, they've been doing super natty for a long time and I think they'd like to stop. Yes. And the more they can yeah. press against the V6 as a solution, it solves a ton of problems. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, and V6 only, you know, it was like a lot of the, uh, when I was working for Infoblox, uh, you know, we had some some early adopters for V6 who were clamoring for certain IPv6 only features and they were larger mobile carriers. So, you know, and, and yeah. of course that was only on their management side, on, on the network management side, but it's just good evidence of exactly that. Well, and, and more and more, if you, the modern dev tools for mobile are abstracted from those network layers pretty heavily, mm -hmm. you know, the, the swifts of the world and the flutters of the world, like you, you don't need to touch that. You probably shouldn't be touching that. Your life will be better. Just use names. <laughs> you know, everything, everything will be fine. There's amazing sauce. It's called DNS. It's yeah. <laughs> and, and just, well, I think it's just a part of a prep. You know, I'm, when, when I get a chance to, to do that consulting practice where I'm working with teams across those things, it is this, hey, let's do a lunch and learn where the, uh, where the ops folks teach the dev folks about here's our DNS infrastructure, how it works, how you register, how you unregister, like this is what it looks like and talk about being naming being trivial because it's just not visible to a lot of folks. So yeah, uh, is it, is it something I just out of curiosity, since you, you, you interact with such a large uh, developer community is, mm -hmm. is networking and DNS, you know, pure networking and DNS, is it actually something that's taught as a specific skill for developers or is it no, really just this typically. sort of like, it's like, Hey, this is out there. This is just a, you know, you just make this a, you know, joke I, used to, I always used to say was I mean, most, when I asked most dev guys, what does the network in your company look like? They draw a, a workstation, they draw a cloud, they draw a line to a box <laughs> called a web server. And sometimes there's a cylinder called a, a database and that's it. It's like you've consolidated the network admins entire job to this line. <laughs> now that's abstraction. Yeah. <laughs> when, so when we do these, these lunch and learns, bringing the teams together like that, and have them teach each other, right? Like the, right. that first off, like there is a network diagram, this thing's in there, right? And we talk about failover strategies and, and uh, different accesses into the network, the VPN path, the system path, and so forth. The, the thing I looked at at the macro level as a manager, what I wanted from any of those lunch and learns when we were crossing teams is that both parties walk out of that room going, wow, that guy's job is hard. Because <laughs> when you exactly. consolidate a job down to a line, it's trivial and it's not. Yeah, and right. so when they knew it was, and, and so it's the respect, it's the understanding of complexity that it's worth calling and asking questions that you're actually interested and that you start to have that conversation about here's the right way for how we want to manage names. But there's also a pressure when you cross teams that way that we should get our ducks in a row. When I ask ops for a network diagram to show dev what the network diagram looks like to the organization, they're like, we've got one of those somewhere, don't we? Don't we? <laughs> 10 years old. <laughs> yeah. Five but years that's the whole thing is like, it's time to dust it off and clean it up. Mm -hmm. And right. that's good for everybody, right? Same thing when I ask the devs, hey, you guys create these config files for these websites. 
let's walk through all the features in them that you depend on and show them to ops so they know what they are. And right away, they're like, oh, man, we leave a lot of crap behind in our config files. It's like, yeah, that's all the stuff they're tinkering with trying to get that site back up on a Saturday and you don't actually use it anymore. So you know, <laughs> let's turn, no, remove those things. So both people make their stuff better and clarify their own stuff in their mind because they're going to teach it. Right. Yeah, I, I can I can't agree more. And it's the, the good news is when you get the one developer who draws a line and then has has a gap or a break in it and then continues the line and says, like, that's where the firewall goes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, easy <laughs> that's what always breaks my network. <laughs> yeah, he draws the little bricks and the little flames on the top. Of it. Yeah. Like, is it, we, we don't like it, but we know it's there. Yeah. It ruins everything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, big. I was always surprised when we showed them things like there's a connection to a backup data center. It has a different IP range and a different, uh, you know, naming strategy and so forth. It's like, how are we going to make software that actually automates that failover? You know, all those failover solutions, as much as we want ops to be able to manage them, software needs to tolerate it. And it's right. not a lot of code. It's clever code, but it's not a lot of it. But if it isn't there, there are no failovers. There's just fails. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's many a time, I don't know how many network engineers Tom and I have, have spoken to that, that, you know, the, the universally just dread the layer two extension stuff from data center oh, yeah. to data center. I need a VLAN on the same VLAN. It's just, why can we just use layer three, please? And, yeah. and, and not it's, make our life spinachery horrible and, you know, everything else. And well, and, and what it, it is, it, it is again, digging a deeper hole because you made the first mistake, which was not separating those behaviors so that you could do a, a real failover to a new infrastructure. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, can't, can't agree more. And well, and, and the, 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 you ever heard this line? Doctors bury their mistakes. Developers cover them in code. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, I, th I think one of the things is, is there, there are some rare breeds in the world, uh, folks like yourselves who really do understand the operation side because you've done so much tuning and optimization yeah. and, and you're a developer too. And so you get that great, the, all, the great all it really means is I've had my butt kicked in a lot of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's right. no, you know where the confidence comes from? I have already died many times, right? <laughs> and already had a buried, been buried in a lot been of code. Been buried a few times, right? <laughs> done all, and done every one of those mistakes and then, you know, knew it and tried to clean it up and do the right thing. Like once you wade through a few of those things, you get a lot less afraid. It, well, I, 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 Richard, I thought all that came from, I, I thought all your bravery just came from how much, how much, how much hard liquor that you chose to drink. After well, all you the know, events. It, that's the part that lets me still sleep at night. I am numb, <laughs> right? But the, but the, it's funny how much fun it is to do the right thing too. And to actually have yeah. the firefight to come out the other side. Uh, and when you live in them and when you start living in the management level, where you start creating environments that encourage people to do the right thing to do that the best way we solve this is to collaborate with each other to let each other's respective skills come to play like those sort of things for the price of a few pizzas to just start having those folks do the conversations like it's it makes all the difference in the world and it's only a piece of a larger puzzle of recognizing that we're actually all on the same side we're trying to deliver value to customers and yeah, the win together is 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 really big. That you know, it coming to coming together as a bigger team and realizing that you can have impact that way is is, yeah. is a pretty is a pretty uh, pretty strong motivator and a, and a real you know, I think morale boost uh, sort of across the board to win that way. I've always meant to write the book DevOps when to throw the party, right? And it's <laughs> there are it, it, you know you don't throw the party when you chuck the code over the wall and say to the ops guys, hey, deploy this, right? Like that's not right. a good time. And even you don't even throw the party after they deployed it, right? Like you would argue you throw the party when the new features have been used and you have log files showing that it's helping customers. That's a good time to have a party. And that's but a good time. The, the revenue the revenue target is also a good time. <laughs> yeah, excellent uh, goal. But there's other little events I found when I as a as a manager had an ops guy and a dev guy show at the same time wanting to get a new feature put into the app that would help them during an operations crisis or that would, you know, increase visibility into software, that kind of thing. That was a good time to have a little party. Like when those guys were on the same side of a problem and we're pressing the PMs to get that feature in sooner because it's going to make a difference to overall productivity. That Think about all the things that are working when that happens, mm. that they, the, yeah. those teams see eye to eye. Came, worked on a problem together and came to a conclusion that they want to move forward on, right? And then, you know, let's throw the IBV v4 v6 conversation. That team in that state 
you can have that conversation and know the software is going to do the right thing because they ha- are comfortable enough to have that. Like, what's the right way to do this? Like, how would you want, how, how does this make you happy that you can manage it, that we're not going to surprise you with our software? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a great point. I mean, I was, my next question, funny enough, was going to be lessons learned that you wanted to share with the audience, but I think we're, we're going through a whole handful of those, yeah, sure. you know, right, right now. I mean, is, is there anything else that sort of comes top of mind around sort of, you know, lessons learned, things that are like, you know, hey, this is going to really, really improve both your life and your developer's life if, if, uh, if, if you get the opportunity to do this stuff. I, I mean, I would, I would argue first and foremost, it's resist this, the idea that we're unique. You're almost certainly not. And I, again, I think like we had a great 18 months of reminding ourselves we're not. Uh, you go go with the most typical implementations and solutions. Like what, what do you see as the common way to do this and so forth? But also accept that it doesn't matter which team you're talking to on, nobody's an expert, right? We're all feeling our way on this. A, it's evolving rapidly. You know, sure, IPv6 has been around for 20 years, but the IPv6 of 20 years ago is very different to what's here today. Right. So there's part, you know, if I'm a dev coming to operations guys and going, you know, can we talk a bit about the IPv6 strategy? And all I get are like that, that groundhog pop up look like you want to talk about what? Like, hey, I get it. It's nobody's an expert, but, you know, let's collaborate on it. Like I'm interested, you're interested, like we can try and find our way through this and, and start to build up a repertoire because sooner or later we're going to have to deal with it. And, uh, and it's interesting, you know, just be, comfortable with that people are uncomfortable with this at this point in many organizations or there's one person and they're the scary one that's into it and nobody else is on board yet they're the crazy one that's it yeah (laughs) but this is gonna bite us we have to deal with it it's like yeah he's always saying that the sky is always falling right exactly and then suddenly a senior dev showed up and said hey before the sky falls on us what about this thing (laughs) and hopefully you can collaborate from there well, I mean, Richard, uh, fantastic advice, I think, for everyone on, on that. And and uh, with that, I wanted to pivot a little bit and give mm-hmm. you a chance to talk about something that you're sort of passionate about, too, besides, obviously, the the the, the, the just general mentoring and, and, and helping developers get better and work with operations. Uh, you started a pretty interesting project, uh, you know, on, on your own as, as something as sort of a community way of sort of giving back. So I wanted to give you a chance to sort of talk a little bit about that. Um, sure. Open up the floor and... And uh, maybe you can introduce the audience to what the what the what the project actually is and uh, what you're up to, and if folks are interested, how they can get involved. Absolutely. So, Humanitarian Toolbox is a charity we helped put together. I mean, all the way back in 2012, which is crazy. And it was really a recognition that it's really hard for technology people to give their skills to charity, right? Uh, which is, although lots of folks do. It's just a recognition of the commitment. Whether you're writing software or managing infrastructure, you know, you know, it's even like giving an old computer to a friend. You know perfectly well you just signed up for IT support for that, right? And right. same issue when you deal with with doing charitable giving around those technical skills is that it's a long term commit. There's no such thing as a short term commit around that. And so, what humanitarian toolbox is really about is saying, can we be the long-term commit part of where software for disaster response and preparedness can live so that volunteer developers and and IT folks in certain cases as well can make contributions to it and we'll do the care and feeding over time. So we've done a few different projects over the years. The current one is called Two Weeks Ready and it comes out of the disaster preparedness space where the modern thinking around disaster preparedness is that you and your family should be able to function without significant support for up to two weeks. Now I gotta, I gotta make my, my to go bag a little bigger, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Well, for a long time it was three days, but now we're starting to recognize that in major events, three days is not enough. Uh, now we're working with uh, specifically with Washington and Oregon, although California has been around and British Columbia is getting involved as well. So there's an initial focus on earthquake and tsunami preparedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the last couple of scrum calls have been talking an awful lot about forest fires for obvious yeah, reasons. Wildfires. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there, there's where you have that serious go bag of if you need to evacuate in 20 minutes, like what would you grab and being or- organized for that? So the app itself 
with the 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 main thing we've done over and over again at HTBox has been to bring cloud and mobile into the equation for response and preparedness, um, which doesn't sound that adventurous if you've been working in enterprise space where we've been doing this for years. But in the emergency response space, they, they're a little more careful. Uh, they, they move pretty slowly in, uh, on this sort of thing, and they're trying to leverage and be more efficient uh, around what you can do there. And the fact that everybody has a smartphone lends itself to that. So at the simplest level, two weeks ready is an app that allows you to have lists of what should be in your box, which is great. But you know now we start using the software to do smart things like keep track of expiry dates. This is all well and fine that you put a 90-day supply of cup of soup in the box, but you put it in there in 2009. And now it may not be food anymore. So the idea that uh, you know six months before the expiry date, your app would remind you, hey, why don't you eat this and replace it rather than let it go bad? Right. And water's a big one too, right? Because water does yeah. have their stable, stable water, but it does have an expiring date. It absolutely and does. Yeah, yeah. And if you're going to start, and it's wise to have sets of prescription meds available, you know, being retained that way too. And they definitely have expiration days. Um, The other piece in this app that we've really had a lot of fun with is the family part. But generally in any given family, when it comes to predators, there's one family member, Uh, you know, and I'm not going to cast it necessarily a mom, maybe it's dad, you know, but there's one family member that's working hard on the preparedness, make buying the things and setting up the box and so forth. But the whole family needs to know about it. So one of the features that's been, we've been building in the app is that you put all this information in and it syncs to all the phones in the family. Because in the event, in an event where the cell network typically would go down, the fact that it's already loaded on your phone, so you do not need connectivity to look at the plan and to know, hey, if I'm at work, this is where I should meet up with you. If the kids are at school, they're going to go here, like all of those sorts of, of rules are right. already in everybody's phone in advance. And we've packaged it up in a way where you put that data together, it's encrypted and moved between the phones. Nobody else has a copy of it. Only the phones that you authorize have access to that data. Oh, so that's we're, cool. We're, we're maintaining people's privacy, but the main thing is that we've got, we're making sure that everybody in the family has that info. Right. And then you and start it, digging into the next layer, like here's how you turn off, if dad's not around, like how do you turn off the gas in the house? Like those sorts of things. So that anybody who during that crisis can work through that list and know what to do. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I mean, it's, and, and I think this is one of the things that people are starting to realize as, especially with the wildfires here in California, that, mm-hmm. uh, that stuff like that was a, a, a big deal because people realized they didn't have to go bags for their pets. Yeah. Uh, that was another thing like, Passive, you know, it's like who's, yeah, who's responsible for that? I don't have any dog food. I don't have any cat food. I don't have any, you know, their meds. I didn't have uh, stuff like that. And I know a lot of people, they'll do things like, um, not all the, the, uh, not all the grab and go bags are the same, right? They put different, mm-hmm. they actually buy different colored ones because they, they you know, this is, this has got my got meds and my clothes. Yeah. And yeah. all that sort of stuff as opposed well, to trying to put tags on them, things like that. And it's often a thing that we only think about once or twice a year. And so the idea that we could use a piece of software in the phone to remind you on a monthly basis to do some refreshes, get some new items, add to the list gradually over time, you know, those sorts of things so that we're more prepared. You know, and and, the, and on the back end of this is also, it's a bit of instrumentation to help with, we're working directly with the emergency preparedness folks in these different states. And so while maintaining everybody's privacy, the fact that you're using the app gives us an indicator that you're working on your preparedness. So it helps preparedness organizations spend money intelligently. Right. Say, they get a little bit remote preparedness. Right. They get a little bit of stats to help them in terms yeah, of funding that initiative. And yeah. It's like, should we yeah, put more energy into this county to to uh, to get more prepared and, you know, step it up a level, that kind of thing. And in the end, it's yeah. all these are things are goals to save lives. And then, you know, now there's pieces we're starting to build that during events, uh, including a connection to your county. So that if your county has information for you, it just shows up in the app. Ah, uh, that's neat. Yeah, it's, well, been a, it's been a ton of fun. We've been working on it for a while. Uh, it's for those who care about the stack. It's a view app. Uh, the back end is mostly Azure Functions. We are part of Microsoft Philanthropy. So they are, uh, um, Microsoft Philanthropies basically will give Azure to charities. We're actually a 501c3 registered charity. So, okay. um, which has a bunch of benefits. So AR, any contribution to us is tax deductible. Often companies do matching. So if you put an hour of work in with us, there's a, a donation in kind, that, that kind of thing. 
Uh, we often have whole product team, uh, teams of developers that will come together and spend a weekend working on our project together. Uh, and oh, that's cool. it's a good team building exercise. Like it's fun to write software that's not the day to day. It's just a, it's a piece of software that saves lives instead. And, uh, and it's a great way to, you know, it is a part of corporate citizenship and contribution. So it's been interesting. You know, I've made a lot of podcasts and dealt with a lot of software teams and so forth. It's interesting to operate a charity. It's a, it's a strange business. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're, our, our intent's pretty solid. And these are important things to do. And we can help a lot with how to do this. Those emergency response guys and the preparedness guys, they're amazing. But they're not technology people. They're just not. And they think differently. And it's a great, you know, we get a lot of feedback from them. They're, they're participating with us pretty heavily on GitHub, adding to the wiki, writing up issues and so forth. And they're getting a little more, more savvy, but they're seeing how developers pick up these pieces and, and write the code and, and, uh, and contribute to the project. And then they're happy to do the testing and push back. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. really cool. Well, unlike V6, we run out of space for this podcast. Thanks to today's <laughs> guest, Richard Campbell. So how can the audience follow you on the internet? Let's, let's, let's plug a few things, you know, oh, I, you know, I get around. So Rich Campbell on, on the Twitters, which you'll see me there most of the time. Uh, I do make a few podcasts. .NET rocks is aimed at the .NET developer run as radio, a more generalized it show, but Microsoft centric admittedly. Uh, I'm part of the dev intersection group of conferences. So that's me leveraging that same skill to make those shows is to help uh, bring speakers together to, to talk about stuff in person. Our next in-person event is in December in Vegas. Ah, okay. Uh, looks to be a big party, you know, finally getting back together again. Uh, and then obviously you know, humanitarian toolbox, which is htbox.org, right? If, I mean, humanitarian toolbox.net works also, but you have okay. to know how to spell humanitarian. Htbox.org <laughs> uh, is a lot easier for folks. Yeah, so yeah. We tend to use that one, and all the projects are, live on GitHub. They're all open source. Uh, anybody, you know, we don't control access to them. If you want it, you want it to fork it and run with it. Knock yourself out. We, we, you know, they're all MIT licensed. We don't worry about that. About, our biggest problem is our biggest concern is maintaining that software, keeping it going long term, not keeping it secret. We're not here to make right. money from it. We're here to help people with it. Uh, I can't can't thank you enough for that. Um, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter too. So we're at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, hopefully you're listening on Spotify too. And uh, if you like this podcast, then we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and Network Break, and all the other great technical content over at the Packet Pushers at PacketPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet, the IPv6 internet that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.